there are two facets, there are two facets to my personality that have made my life busy over the years. The first facet is that I want, I want people to like me, and I've wanted people to like me. There's a bit of a people pleaser in Max Vanderpool, and so, and so a lot of things over my life, especially when I was younger, oh, yes, 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 I can do that, yes, I'll be there, yes. Uh, yes was my default answer because there was this thing in me. The second thing about my personality that has created a lot of busyness in my life is I'm high responsibility. It's one of my top five strengths. And so when somebody asks me to do a task or complete something or commit to something, I'm going to own it. Oh, yes, I've got that. I'll make sure it's done. And I carry that with me and, and the weight that goes with it. When I was in college, these two facets got me involved with the Wheaton College Wind Ensemble. Not only was I a saxophonist, I became an officer and then the president of the Wind Ensemble. I was involved in Baptist Student Union. I was a Sunday school leader in my Sunday school class at First Baptist Church of Wheaton, Illinois. Uh, I was also a member of the College Republicans and then the College Democrats. If you want to know why, I'll explain later. But I, was, I helped start both organizations on Wheaton's campus. On Sunday afternoons, on Sunday afternoons, I would gather together for two or three hours with a group of people that would pray for revival for Wheaton College, and, and I would do that on Sunday afternoons. I also needed two jobs because everything I made in the summer paid the first semester tuition, and so I needed altitude, altitude during that first semester to pay for the second semester tuition. So I, I got to have two jobs. It was awesome. I worked in the cafeteria, and then I was also a teaching assistant, which was great because that was like work that you could do in the middle of the night. Um, I, also, I also wrote a weekly column for the, the college newspaper, and, it, and, and that wasn't exactly enough because along with five other friends, I started an underground newspaper that we would distribute after chapel because this is back in the day when they didn't have the internets, and so you had to do everything on paper, and so we distributed after chapel. Um, I also was a discipleship small group leader. The Office of Christian Outreach had this thing where you could um, be in a small group with other guys or other girls, depending upon your gender. And so I was a DSG leader uh, the last couple of years. And then one time a month, I would, with another set of friends, put on a service for an old person's home uh, in Wheaton, Illinois. In my spare time, I dated Jenny. (laughs) Whose love language is quality time. So you can guess what we fought about in our early days. (laughs) I was busy. And then in the 1990s, I became a pastor. I was a children's pastor first, and then I was an executive pastor. And these phrases came out of my mouth all the time. Yes, absolutely, no problem. I would be happy to meet with you. Yes, I can do that. Yes, I'll be there. People at church loved me. My wife was not exactly happy. My son thought all I did was go to meetings. (laughs) Daddy, you're always going to meetings. Okay? And I remember driving along at that point in my life and literally banging my head on the steering wheel going, why did I commit to that? Why am I so stupid? Why did I agree to that? I'm surprised it didn't put a dent, you know, in the steering column thing because it's, you know, that rotomole plastic or whatever. But I would, I would do that. And I was like, oh. Now, I don't have to tell most of you in this room that you're busy. You're already mercilessly aware of the fact that you're busy. 
There's your job. There's church, you know, when you can make it. And thank you for coming today. There's stuff. There's household chores. There's, you know, your spouse, your friends and family that you don't keep up with. And then if you've got kids, there's their homework and their activities and their practices and their games and their rehearsals and their performances. And (sighs) what day is it? You know, you get this because this is how we do life in America today. We do crazy busy. Isn't that awesome? Crazy busy. It's the new normal. And so it used to be when you would ask somebody, how are you? They would say, oh, I'm fine. How are you? The new greeting is, how are you? Oh, I'm busy. And they're supposed to say, oh, my goodness, I totally get you on that. And then you do a list with each other to see who is busiest. (laughs) And the person that's the busiest is like a snitch, and they've got a star, and they're better (laughs) than everyone else. That's just how it works. We do everything on the go. We multitask. We can't do just one thing at one time. We have to at least do two things at once because there's a lot to do. Here's what I've noticed in terms of traffic and how it's changed. Ten years ago, people hated red lights. They, I would be behind somebody on a red light and they would be, vroom, 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 you know, and as soon as it turned green, it was like the Indianapolis 500. Now I'm behind people, the light turns red, they don't go at all. And I notice that their head's down, staring at their crotch. I'm, what I'm guessing, what I'm, this is just speculation on my part, but what I'm guessing is that that's where their smartphone is, and because the light turned red, they were like, oh, I can respond to that text, or oh, I can check, you know, whatever. So they're, they're doing that, and they see red lights as like an opportunity to check in. Um, today, I want to call out some of the stuff that's in our heart, some of the stuff that's in our mind, and some of the stuff that's in our soul that drives us to do too much. So today, as we start off this series, what I want to do is really unmask some of those things that are in me and in you. And trust me, this series, this particular series, I am preaching to myself, okay? You get to come along for the trip. This is not a new problem, by the way. Uh, I know we like to think one of the products of the Enlightenment is that we think we're better and smarter and faster than all the other people who've lived on planet Earth. We're so evolved. We're amazing. But the truth of the matter is people are people, and people have been people since we've had human civilization, however long that's been. And some of the things that we struggle with today are, are not new, are not unique. And I'm talking about the heart issues that create unhealthy, dangerous patterns that drive us to do too much or that drive us to allow other things, other situations to define who we are and what we're worth. The very first king of Israel struggled with this. He struggled with what you and I struggle with. And we're going to peer into a moment in his life that's recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 13. So if you brought a paper Bible, you can open it. They'll throw the verses up on the big screen. You can pull out your device or phone. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 13. This particular man is a man named Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel. He stood head and shoulders above everyone else. It means he was taller. But he was also the man that God chose to lead the people of Israel. And so 
1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. We're going to peer into a moment in his life. One of the duties that Saul had, primary duties, was to lead the Israelites into battle. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 42 years. Saul selected 3,000 special troops from the army of Israel and sent the rest of the men home. He took 2,000 of the chosen men with him to Michmash in the hill country of Bethel. The other 1,000 went with Saul's son, Jonathan, to Gibeah in the land of Benjamin. Soon after this, Jonathan attacked and defeated the garrison of the Philistines at Geba. The news spread quickly among the Philistines. So Saul blew the ram's horn throughout the land saying, Hebrews, Hebrews, hear this, rise up and revolt. And all Israel heard the news that Saul had destroyed the Philistine garrison at Geba and that the Philistines now hated the Israelites more than ever. So the entire Israelite army was summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. Saul is part of a long line of people in the biblical text in in history that faced insurmountable odds, but because God was on their side, they were like, we're going to carry the day. God's with us. God's for us. We have this. Not because of anything we have on our own, but because God is with us. And part of the sorting that's going on in these first few verses, Saul's going to go out to battle, and he's like, you know, I don't even need the whole army. God's going to carry the day. God's going to defeat our enemies for us. And so there's roughly 3,000 men that he gathers. Moses did this with the Egyptians. Joshua did this time and time again as they entered the land of Canaan. Now, the Philistines were a particularly rough arch enemy for Israel. The Philistines would come in and raid Hebrew towns. They would take people's daughters back with them. They would take anything of value, and they loved showing up at harvest time, right as the Hebrews had gathered everything in, and they would take everything back to the Philistine nation. All right? So let's see how this plays out, verses 5 and following. The Philistines mustered a mighty army of 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and as many warriors as grains of sand on the seashore. They camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. The men of Israel saw what a tight spot they were in, and because they were hard-pressed by the enemy, they tried to hide in caves, thickets, rocks, holes, and cisterns. Some of them crossed the Jordan River and escaped into the land of Gad and Gilead. So, let's kind of do some basic math here. Let's say Saul has about 3,000 men. These men are foot soldiers. He doesn't have chariots. He doesn't have cavalry. They didn't have very many blacksmiths around. So the weapons that these Israelites had were, uh, uh, you know, uh, shears, hammers, stuff that you would use to farm with. The Philistines have spears. They have cavalry. um, And as many foot soldiers as grains of sand on the seashore. So the Philistines have a technological advantage. They have a numerical advantage. They're outnumbering the Israelites roughly six to one. It looks bad, and Saul's men start slipping away one by one. Well, let's continue on, verse 7 and following. Meanwhile, Saul stayed at Gilgal, and his men were trembling with fear. Saul waited there seven days for Samuel, as Samuel had instructed him earlier, but Samuel didn't come. 
Saul realized that his troops were rapidly slipping away, so he demanded, Bring me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Saul sacrificed the burnt offering himself. Just as Saul was finishing with the burnt offering, Samuel arrived. Saul went out to meet him and welcomed him, but Samuel said, What is this you've done? Saul replied, I saw my men scattering from me, and you didn't arrive when you said you would, and the Philistines are at Michmash ready for battle. And I said, The Philistines are ready to march against us, and I haven't even asked for the Lord's help. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering myself before you came. How foolish, Samuel exclaimed. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God gave you. Had you kept it, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom must end, for the Lord sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has already appointed him to be leader of his people, because you've not kept the Lord's command. So Saul was ordered to wait seven days. Samuel the prophet would come. Samuel the prophet would offer a sacrifice. Samuel the prophet would commission the troops. Every king in Israel had a prophet beside him. Every king. And the prophet was the person who spoke on God's behalf. Because in, in, in God's mindset, the way this whole king thing is supposed to work is God is the big king over everything, and then the king of Israel is beneath him. And so God is the one to decide when to go to war, who to go to war with, what battles to, to pick and choose, and how to roll. And the king is supposed to say, yes, sir, God, I'll do what you say. And it comes through God's spokesman or God's mouthpiece, the prophet. And so... Saul sees that his troops are slipping away. He's afraid, he's desperate, and so he jumps in and he says to himself, I gotta do this. If I don't do this, this isn't gonna work out. How many times have you and I been there in a situation? I've gotta, I just, I've gotta do this. And you grab hold of something you're not supposed to grab hold of. What's going on in Saul's heart is spelled out clearly a couple of chapters later in chapter 15. And they'll put these verses up, verses 24 and following. Then Saul admitted to Samuel, yes, I've sinned. I've disobeyed your instructions in the Lord's command, for I was afraid of the people and did what they demanded. But now please forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel replied, I'll not go back with you. Since you've rejected the Lord's command, he's rejected you as king of Israel. And as Samuel turned to go, Saul tried to hold him back and tore the hem of his robe. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to someone else, one who is better than you. Ouch. And he who is the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he's not human that he should change his mind. And Saul pleaded, I know I've sinned, but please... At least honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel by coming back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel agreed and went back with him and Saul worshiped the Lord. This man lived thousands of years ago and because he was insecure and because he wanted the elders and the people of Israel to think he was such an amazing king, he valued that more than he valued what God thought of him and what God commanded and he got himself in a pinch. He got himself in a jam. And the tragedy of these verses is that at the very last minute, what is he begging Samuel the prophet to do? Please, just walk with me so that everybody thinks everything's okay. I don't want them to know that God has rejected me. 
He cares more about what the people think than what God thinks of him. That's the tragedy. So let's, what happens in chapter 13, a couple of, a uh, couple of months earlier. Samuel then left Gilgal and went on his way, but the rest of the troops went with Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah, and when Saul counted the men who were left with him, he only found 600 were left. Ouch. When uh, Saul and Jonathan and the troops with them were staying in Geba, the Philistines set up their camp at Michmash, and the raiding party soon left the camp of the Philistines. One went north toward Oprah in the land of Shoal. The other went to Beth Horon, and the third moved to the border of the valley of Zebulun near the wilderness. There were no blacksmiths in the land of Israel in those days. The Philistines wouldn't allow them for fear they'd make swords and spears. So whenever the Israelites needed to sharpen their plowshares, picks, axes, or sickles, they had to take them to a Philistine blacksmith and that lists the charges. Verse 22, So on the day of the battle, none of the people of Israel had a sword or spear except for Saul and Jonathan. Because of the tyranny of the urgent, because of circumstances, because of insecurity and self-doubt, Saul set aside what God commanded and said, I gotta, and he got in trouble for it. I've been down that road. I have been down that road so many times. And it's, it's, it's stupid. I want to kind of unmask some of those things of the heart and the mind and the soul for a moment. And if you'll put up my slide that talks about killer peas so they can actually see them as I cover them. Kevin DeYoung, who's a pastor in Michigan, he calls them killer peas. So it'd be the next picture. There are killer peas in your soul, in your heart, that cause you to do things, that cause you to agree to things, that put you in circumstances that you shouldn't be in. And the biggest overarching one of them all is actually pride, because, and I know, you, you hear that, and I hear that, and you think, and I think, pride's not my problem. I, my self-talk is so negative. I look in the mirror, and I go, eh, and I whimper. I mean, Max, pride is not my problem. I get that, and I feel the same way, but pride is any time we think something other than God is going to help us feel worthwhile, be and live. Okay, so what are some of these things? The first one is people-pleasing. Perfect example. You need to make cookies for your daughter's class. Are you making them because you want to, or are you making them because the teacher asked, and you don't want to let down your daughter, and, and you also had three other things you had to do. I, part of the reason my GPA was a 397 in, in college, people-pleasing. Like me, professor, like me, look, I can hit the ball, sting, I can turn in an A paper, like me, like me, people-pleasing. Pats on the back is another thing that gets us in trouble. If I do this project at the office, I will be a hero. Forget the fact that it's not going to play out well at home. It, at, when I go to work, I'll be a demigod because I took on mm, that. Pat's on the back. Then there's the performance trap. Well, if I don't do this, no one else will. Here's the truth. Most of us, in terms of what we do, are replaceable. Case in point. I didn't preach six weeks at Generations this summer. The church didn't close. No one died. And you actually got good preaching, okay? <laughs> All of us are replaceable. If I don't do this, no one else will, okay? In another one, possessions. America is so, I love America in so many ways, but in so many ways we're dysfunctional. We earn and work so hard so that we can spend. 
<laughs> and so whether it's screens or cars or boats or whatever it is, we earn to spend, and that drives so many of our commitments and extra jobs and other things. Proving yourself, for some of us, we have an X. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show them. I'm going to show them so that they know that they made the stupidest decision ever not to choose me. I'm going to be so awesome. <laughs> they will know. They will weep is what they will do. Pete, come on. Pity. Pity is another thing. Uh, face it. When others know that you're swamped and overwhelmed, that can sometimes feel good. Oh, my gosh. Bless your heart. You poor thing. And you go, yes, my, I am a poor thing. Pray for me. Another P that gets us in trouble, poor planning. Like, maybe you shouldn't have agreed to do your daughter's party and help your friend get their car to the repair shop on the day your big project is due at the office. Maybe those shouldn't all align on the same day. Poor planning is something that can get us in trouble. Perfectionism is another one. Perfectionism, this has got to be right. This has got to be right. It's got to be perfect. It's got to be better. In my first graduate degree program, I would sit at a computer and type a paragraph of this uh, thesis I was doing, and then I would go, well, that's horrible, and I would delete it. And then I would write another paragraph, and I would delete it. And Jenny would come home at the end of the workday and go, so, how many pages did you write? Um, um. (laughs) To this day, it's why I handwrite everything, because... I know myself and my heart well enough to know that Max Vanderpool can't create on a computer. For the rest of my life, I will always create on paper. Because you do that in ink, you, you can scratch it out, but it's still there. Okay? Perfectionism. And then there's posting. That gets a lot of us in trouble. Come on, face it. Instagram and Pinterest are not real. But there's so much posting that's out there that's a, look at me, I'm a great parent, I'm a great spouse, I'm a great kid. Heart this, like this, validate me, please. And we go to these places and these links to get stamped. And it, on the inside, we're dying. On the inside, we're dying because it really isn't enough. So that leads me to the question that I want to ask to you. So the, in light of this, in light of Saul, in light of this stuff that's in your heart and my heart, you and I, we need to ask ourselves, why do we do what we do? Why do we do what we do? Why do I do that? Why do I do this? Um, Am I trying to do good or am I trying to look good? What's going on in my heart and in my soul? That's, That's the first thing. And so if you'll put my questions up there, why do I do the things that I do? Am I trying to do good or am I trying to look good? So the first assignment that I have for you is an investigative assignment. And it's not easy, it's messy. But you got to know, are there some killer peas in you? And if so, what are the ones that you have? you got to know them, and you got to name them, and you got to know what they are in order to be able to have Jesus <laughs> reprogram you. Okay? And if you're under 25 years old, you may not be aware, this may not make sense to you, But I bet there's a part of you that's like, oh my goodness, my mom is so dot, dot, dot. Oh my goodness, my dad is so dot, 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 dot. Here's the thing. Those things that are in your mom and dad, there's a good chance that there's some of them in you. That's how families work. And you'll discover as you age and you get through your late teens and early 20s, 
you'll be at college or you'll be in a work situation and you'll go, oh my goodness, I'm my mother or I'm my father. And you'll be going, oh, and the camera will pan out. <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay, right? So just take note. So, so the first assignment is figure out what are my killer peas that are in me. And the second thing that I want you to do is a homework assignment. And I'll talk about this during announcements. But I want you to do a time audit. Because in order to go someplace different, you've got to know where you are now. And so I've, I've got sheets of paper on the back that have QR codes. If you've got a smartphone, there's an app for Android, for iPhone, and yes, for Windows that can track your time. So that after a week or a month, you can go, oh, that's where it's going. Huh. And you can make adjustments and changes. I want to ask our musicians to the stage. And in a moment, after I pray for you, this is what I want you to do. You got a hello, my name is tag when you came in. And while they're playing a song in a moment, I wonder if you would be willing today, because this is a spiritual thing. This is a God thing. God's here. God's here, and he's for you, and he's with you. Would you be willing to agree with God on maybe a killer P? If there's a killer P in your life, what is it? Name it. Write it down on this. And while they're playing as an act of faith, you can come up and literally peel and stick it up here as a, you know what? I agree with you, God. There's this thing in me, and I want you to lead me beside still waters. I want you to direct my steps. I don't want to look to these other things to define who I am and what I'm worth. Along those lines, I would encourage you with this. Let Jesus define who you are. Let Jesus define what you're worth. This is what Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 11. He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Jesus gives us an opportunity to live a new humanity because of the indwelling of the Spirit in us that frees us from all of these peas that trap us and bring nothing but death. I want to pray for you and pray for me. God, we acknowledge, just like the Philadelphia chickens, we are busy, 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 busy. We zoom through life. That's how we roll. And we acknowledge today that there's probably some of it that is not stuff that you've asked us to do. And we acknowledge, too, that there are things in us that cause us to agree to things and we put ourselves in situations and we end up like me banging, your head, banging our head against the steering wheel going, why did I do that? I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to be here. So God, work in our hearts. Give us eyes to see ourselves the way you see us. God, help us to allow you to define who we are and what we're worth. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. While they play, what's your pee? And will you give God an opportunity to do something?